Hello, everybody. This is the Third Fridays podcast, and my name is Christian Cisan. Let's talk about where we were last month. Uh, my guest was Declan Gorley, and I'd like to thank him again for appearing uh, for one of our uh, more highly listened to episodes. And it made sense because it talked about virtual hearings, and it's still a hot-button issue within the workers' compensation world, uh, or I guess state of New York. Um, it's that New York-centric idea that I have that New York is the world. But anyway, uh, virtual hearings uh, have become a big deal. Uh, they are now implemented in more than half of New York State's hearing points. And as recently as this past Monday, White Plains became the newest location. Uh, so we definitely are making more of a footprint in the New York virtual hearing world. I'm, I, I know that there are a lot of law judges in remote areas of the state that are seeing that lowest law firm letter of representation and seeing our faces at the hearing points uh, virtually. So that, that's been good for us. It's been good for our clients to see savings being passed along. And I think it's a good trend uh, that the board is, uh, you know, developing and, and really taking action with to making sure that efficiency and expediency are, are really uh, pr uh, big priorities going forward. Uh, one thing I do want to note uh, is that we will be doing two special editions to the New York webinar series later this month. Uh, you should be receiving emails regarding those dates and times, uh, and that's going to be a webinar regarding uh, virtual hearings, uh, implementing our practice and our ideas about how to defend, settle, litigate, and close claims using the virtual hearing model to our advantage. Uh, so please look out for that. Uh, today's episode is going to be about defend from day one. And I guess that's a little bit of a misnomer concern, uh, based on the fact that every episode is tailored to that. But I wanted to talk about where it began, uh, where, where we see it being implemented today, and, and how do we see that uh, really making an impact in the future. So if we, if we kind of turn back time and, and think about where we were, you know, three years ago, uh, I remember giving a presentation to a client uh, out west, and I was asked to review their intake documents that would be given to the claimant when a work accident occurred. And it kind of dawned on me that this is the paperwork analogy to the general questions we get by phone every day from our clients and, and, and prospective clients, and also you know the questions that we get when we do the webinars, right? Uh, I think one of the nice features of the webinar is simply the, I, the ability to ask questions in real time about uh, what you're thinking about, you know what your uh, what your case population looks like, and then having the presenters, uh, me, Greg, you know, Declan, uh, all of our attorneys, uh, having having us answer them in real time and getting something uh, quickly that can help you and your case population. So we're going to talk about that. Um, I guess I skipped over the fact that 
it really is just me here. There's no second voice, and and maybe I'm worried that uh, you know the the viewership or the the listeners are g- going to cut out now that there's no Declan Gorley, Chris Major, Tashia Razul as my guest today, uh, and. As I see my producer giving me an evil eye, I can see that. I guess she trusts me enough to do this by myself. So let's take us back to three three years ago, about three years ago, where we had that problem, and uh, I kind of took that as 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 a reason to do something different, right? Uh, I, if anyone knows me, uh, I am obsessed with finding different ways to solve the same old problems that we face. Uh, in our our day to day lives, and that's just not based on work. I mean, it could happen in in, in personal in our personal lives too. That's um, my goal: trying to find something new and trying to find a different way to do something that we've been doing the same way. And I think that spurred this kind of movement that I've been peddling uh, and drilling into. Uh, you know, our training program here and our clients uh, that are currently uh, using us to defend claims because we do know that if we do nothing, there's a presumption that any claim would be compensable. It's actually codified into the workers' compensation law, uh, the presumption of compensability, and we need to take action from the the get-go. And obviously it's a a theme or, or, or a concept that seems fairly obvious. But if we think about when that call comes in, that a, that a work accident occurred, how vigilant are we being? How, how, how vigilant are we uh, in uh, reacting to this claim? Are, are we putting it off for tomorrow or next week? Um, you know, in these here parts, uh, and, and I'm saying this live from the kill room and and none of the other attorneys in, in my office can hear me, but they know that our motto is to do is to is to drop everything when there's an issue of compensability uh, being asked. Because what you do in those first few days, weeks uh, after the allegation of a work accident can really affect the entire claim, right? So whether we're uh, deciding to deny a claim whether we're deciding to accept the claim uh, without prejudice uh, or we're agreeing that the claim is compensable, all those decisions have to be met with action associated with those choices. So how is it being implemented today? Well, there's a case that just came out uh, issued by the Appell Division on April 26th, and it's called uh, Derushi versus Messina, uh, and it involved a claimant who had an unrelated motor vehicle accident that resulted in a pelvic fracture and a surgery. Well, of course, uh, as we know, uh, this claimant uh, then sustains a work accident, and his workers' compensation doctors, being the shills that they are, requested two different surgeries. Uh, this one was a total left hip replacement and a total right knee replacement. And there, those requests for surgeries were denied based on the pre-existing accident. Uh, testimony was taken. And here's what happened. The first treating doctor admitted that the claimant had pre-existing arthritis before the work accident that rendered him a candidate for the total left hip replacement and the right knee replacement. Uh, 
Unfortunately, he also testified that the the work accident was the quote-unquote triggering event that caused the claimant to need the surgeries. The second treating physician stated that the pre-existing condition was the condition that required the surgeries in the first place. However, the February 2015 work accident was the aggravating factor that impacted the pre-existing condition and hastened the need for surgeries. Now, the IME that testified on behalf of the carrier had some concession issues. The appellate division did not go into detail. But what's key here is the actual opinion from the court, right? In reaching its decision, the board was free to credit the medical opinion with respect to causation over the contrary medical opinion and could choose to accept those portions of testimony that acknowledged that the work accident hastened the claimant's decision to undergo the replacement surgeries. And we see that a lot uh, in, in board panel decisions, in law judge decisions, and also like these, the appellate division decisions that talk about the board's ability to pick and choose the relevant parts of testimony or medical reports and credit those even though there might be concessions within that overall testimony or within the overall record of that particular doctor. And it's very easy to see that the problems associated with defending this type of request can ultimately lead to a null uh, uh, position or a null finding where you know all, all that we do can be for naught uh, if the judge is simply allowed to pick and choose whichever opinions credit the need for surgery or credit uh, the surgery to be causally related. And so, how how do we do how do we do that? How do we defend that type of claim? Well, think about the three choices that we have when. Uh, an accident is being alleged, right? We talked about denying the claim, accepting the claim without prejudice, or accepting it outright. Well, in either case, the IME should be done as soon as possible, right? Because the longer that the workers' compensation claim is open, the more of a case the claimant has to build up his medical status that showcases functional limitation, so showcases pain, diagnostic testing, uh, failure of conservative treatment. The, that is a long time f- for the claimant to gather evidence in his or her um, position or argument and leave it to the IME to dispute or approve of the surgery after all this time. I know a lot of our clients. Uh, want to avoid an IME in the early stages based on cost. And a lot of that is based on the fact that uh, we sometimes believe that claims uh, are not worth as much as they're going to actually get, right? Um, But I always take the position that an IME is necessary from the get-go because it will help you in the long run, right? It if you feel that it's too costly, I understand, and I'll leave that up to, to each of our clients' uh, business discretion. But in the long run, an IME from the get-go is going to help you. What else is going to help you? Well, if we know in this case that the claimant had an unrelated 
motor vehicle accident that required surgery, well, then you better believe that there's diagnostic testing for that claim, right? We want to run a prior claim search to find out who uh, performed the surgery, who performed the diagnostic testing, uh, and subpoena those providers with HIPAA releases so that we can get those records and compare them to the diagnostic studies that are done after the accident, right? Because we are afraid or we uh, are uh, very concerned about cases that are established as aggravations when they aren't really that severe, right? You know, any any twist of of a of a joint or the bending or pulling pushing uh, activities that are associated with any type of jobs, not even just high labor intensive jobs, those are type of things that can be alleged to have aggravated what is a major major surgery prior to the accident. So, those prior claims reports that indicate prior surgeries and produce the diagnostic testing are not often given to the IME because they're not done at the outset. And the movement to really be vigilant and aggressive from day one uh, has given our clients a little bit of headway and more of a chance in giving the IME a full opportunity to review things from the get-go. Um, the IME opinion closer to the accident accident date is certainly more credible than one that has taken two years after the claimant has undergone physical therapy, chiropractic care, acupuncture, um, all those things that build up uh, a case for a surgery uh, to occur. And, and we know that's, we know that's uh, how it happens, right? Because doctors have gotten so proficient at knowing what the guidelines say in terms of how much physical therapy is required. So just so they can get to a point where they say, conservative care has failed. Look, I prescribed eight weeks of physical therapy. He went through it. I reviewed those records. Well, okay, that, that part's probably not correct. They never review the actual physical therapy records. But essentially, they build the case, right? So having that out, having having that action plan at the outset of prior claims report, subpoenaing prior uh, carriers and uh, doctors for uh, the records that would indicate testing and operative reports, having those then be sent for the IME, that gives us a fighting chance at defending a surgery. Because if we look at this recent case, Darushi versus Messina, this isn't a landmark workers' comp case, right? Everyone that's listening to this podcast right now, maybe uh, save for my mother and my fiancé, have actually been involved in a case where you have a major pre-existing unrelated accident with an aggravation that really amounts to a strain, but the surgery is going to be hit on the comp claim. And that's something that we need to avoid at all costs because those are the claims that should be denied. The ones that should be accepted should be accepted, and I've stressed that ever since I started DFD1, right? The goal of workers' compensation is to accept the claims that are compensable because denying it is simply just a waste of time and resources. But this type of claim in Darushi versus Messina where we have a prior motor vehicle accident that resulted in a pelvic fracture and a surgery, 
that is the type of case that when the doctor requests a total hip replacement, we need to have everything in place before we get there, right? Because at that point, we're only being reactive and we're not proactive. And at that point, we're, we're left to the doctor's opinion, right? We can only hope that the doctor's opinion comes in and we throw enough stuff against the wall that the judge doesn't have anything to pick and choose from the treating doctor's opinions. Because usually more often than not, there's going to be a line in the report that, that, that the judge will be allowed by law to use his or her discretion and find that particular opinion to be credible. Okay, so now we see where uh, DFD1 can be used currently, right? This is an ongoing thing. Uh, but I also wanted to talk about where we see it being implemented for the future. And I want to stay on that topic of IMEs. So if we link it back to last month's podcast and what I talked about what's going to happen this month in terms of our special edition to the New York webinar series, virtual hearings are, you know, are an example. They're an example of the board's decision to really implement technology and make sure that hearings are being uh, adjudicated or, or held in the most efficient manner. And of course, there are going to be hiccups at every hearing point where they implement it and where a judge or, or a practitioner or even a claimant is not going to be used to uh, appearing virtually, using the technology, and following all the steps that's required so that an appearance can be placed on the record. But once that stuff is out of the way, efficiency reigns supreme, right? And if we can have more hearings handled in a shorter amount of time, that's good for everybody. And what I can see or what I can project is uh, in terms of IMEs, how, how can they be used with the technology that we have, right? Well, how often is it in your case population that a treating doctor or an IME is n not really testifying to his or her report? You know, we try to use those reports uh, and lawyerly argue that a fact is actually a concession of the other side. Um, uh, an omission is a failure to document conservative care. Those types of things that we use are more of how testimony is being implemented from record to actual decision, right? It's not often the case that a doctor will write Two plus two equals four in his report, but then steadfastly testify to two plus two equaling five in his testimony, right? Uh, there, there are those cases, to be sure, but the large majority of the, of the litigated medical issues, whether it be degree of disability, need for treatment, um, permanency, those types of issues are going to be implemented in the reports themselves, and I can see the board eliminating the use of medical testimony. We know that the board is undertaking uh, a very large project of auditing all of the IME doctors that are registered and authorized by the state. And I can see testimony being a 
portion of the litigation route that is eliminated because of the fact that cases are so often uh, based on what the judge believes to be the most credible and because testimony doesn't too often deviate from the actual reports, I could see the board moving to a place where they are simply taking one report, putting it up against the opposition's report, and deciding which is the most credible. They already do that now, but right now, but but to do that, we have to go through the process of taking testimony, continuing a case for two months, three months, uh, granting extensions when doctors take their summer vacations or uh, have their own medical emergencies or otherwise can't appear. I can see that becoming a situation where the board simply says, you know what, we can do this on our own. The doctor should, is signing a report and should be held for the opinions in those reports. So how does that affect us? Well, if we can't depend on your scholarly defense attorney at Lois Law Firm to cross-examine the claimant's physician to the fullest extent permitted by the workers' compensation law, we have to get better on our side at producing medical, right? So before I beat that drum uh, with the early IMEs, I also want to talk about the new doctors that are on your vendors' lists, right? A lot of the questions that I get when a new case comes in is, is to pick an IME doctor. And the trouble with that is that we can't actually guarantee what's going to be found in the report. Now, I have maybe a handful of doctors in certain specialties that I know uh, will examine the claimant uh, very well and, very, and, and not just for five minutes. They'll give a good report, and they'll also testify credibly. But we still run into a lot of issues, right? Like, is that doctor available? Um, is that doctor available in the specialty that you need? Uh, is that doctor available in the in the deposition deadline that is required by the judge? So we can't really depend on those doctors. And even if we do, I have seen doctors who have been very good for uh, defense and carriers employers, and then they just get tired of being hammered by claimants attorneys on cross-examination, right? So there are some doctors who I shall remain uh, uh, who shall remain nameless, and you know maybe we can discuss it uh, over the phone. Uh, but there are some doctors who have started to concede more disability, and I put concede in quotes because we know that some of these claimants aren't totally disabled. But I can't shake the feeling that some of the do- these doctors just don't want to testify, and they know that they're not going to have to testify if they concede a total disability. So when I get these lists of doctors that are approved by vendors or uh, available for uh, the particular client, I try to assess it in terms of the case, right? So if you have a hands, fingers, feet, and toes case, right, your schedule cases that you know is going to wind up with an award, whether we have a great doctor or not, I like to tell clients to use that doctor that you don't know. Give him, give him a try on your, on your fingers and toes case. You know that that case isn't going to hurt you that much in terms of exposures. So when you see that uh, 
name on your on your list, or maybe that doctor has just been recently approved, that's the time to try him out, right? And if he does, he or she does well, then maybe we consider him for larger cases. It's kind of the converse of what clients do for us, right? Client when clients don't uh, retain us. Sometimes they look at us and say, okay, hey, Christian, here's a death claim. Go win this for us, and then uh, we'll see if we, we'll send you 100 more. And I love those opportunities. We all do. Um, it's just a way to show how good we are, and that, and you know, more often than not, uh, we do end up getting those referrals on uh, the back end because of the work that we perform on that one one uh, problem case, right? So if we look at an IME doctor and say, okay, we're, this isn't a problem case for me. Let me try this one doctor out who I don't know anything about. You know, does he examine the claimant uh, for enough time? Does he perform uh, goniometric range of motion testing three times? And does he compare them to each other? Does he review all the records? And then when, if it gets to testimony, can he hold up? Is, can, can he be strong in his de- denial or defense of an issue? That would be something that I'm most interested in seeing because we need to build up our lists and not go to the same uh, old dogs that uh, we can't trust anymore. And you know, to be to be completely honest, I, I I could see that from a claimant's perspective too. You know, claimants' attorneys uh, sometimes know that the doctors that they send their clients to are the ones that always want the surgeries. And there's, I, I can see it sometimes where they start to see that this may not be the most credible doctor anymore. So it's not just about defense side; it's about both sides using new doctors to see if they can find different ways to solve the same old problem. Okay. So we talked about DFD one, how did it start, how it's still being implemented and how we can use that for the future, right? It's important that we use these process, not for IMEs, but for everything. So if you have any questions, uh, you can always call me or email me. My information is listed on our firm website. And I also want to make reference to the special editions to the New York webinar series again. Uh, you will, there will be two dates in your inbox very soon regarding how we are implementing our practice policies into the virtual hearing and where we see it going. So I look forward to seeing you there. And until then, defend from day one.